Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host KB, and this podcast brings you the audio experience of GameDev.TV. Now, let's get right into the podcast. Um, hi, uh, everybody. My name is Andy Ashcraft. I am a game designer. I've been designing games professionally since 1994. And uh, unprofessionally from before that, because I've always been a, a, a giant nerd and playing a lot of D&D and, and, uh, and live games and all that in college. And uh, all that stuff sort of led into a game design career that I've been, I've been pretty, pretty pleased with. Um, I have a small game design company, uh, a freelance game design company called Giant Stance Games. And I've worked for a lot of people along the way. Hi. Awesome. Great intro. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Now, how did you uh, how did you get started with all that? What's the what's the beginning story sound like? Yeah, so that that I got super lucky is the is the the short answer to that question is um, the longer answer was that uh, through a lot of uh, friends of mine and I in college I was in at UCLA and we had a, a game design club or a, really a science fiction fantasy comic book you know all of that nerd club basically. Um, and uh, we started doing live role-playing games, uh, or what ended up being being called LARPs. And I ran a bunch of them. And uh, one of the LARPs that I ran had was based on the Sandman comic books. Oh, cool. There were about sixty people in this in this game. And uh, this, I'd graduated college. I'd, uh, I was working at, uh, working really crappy jobs. Uh, and uh, one of the the gals that was in this game uh, was very excited about this character she was playing she was mm-hmm. qu- playing queen titania from the fairylands and uh and she was very excited and kept talking about this game at her work and turns out she worked as a temp at a small game company nearby okay and so they're like you know we need a game designer and so they called me and <laughs> i i ended up like interviewing with them and then i ended up taking their uh their like production guy uh, around to a bunch of like I went, to, I took him to Strategicon, which is a local local game convention here, to like show him around games, to like just to talk about games and talk about uh, uh, because they didn't they 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 didn't really have anybody who was really a game designer there, mm-hmm. and uh, and I ended up getting that job, and it was only for three months. It was a very short job, but it was enough to get my foot in the door, and then that led you know people from <laughs> that job that I met there went on to other jobs, and then they hired okay. me into those other jobs and. And that's sort of the way it uh, way it started. I'm not yeah, sure that that's the way rolling. it could start now. It's it's a lot different now. The industry is a whole lot different. Oh, I know. I'm I'm I get the impression that you and I are about the same age. And yeah, it was kind of the same way. You know, I I went the more corporate route. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, back when we were coming up, if you could spell IT, they threw money at you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, it, it was. There, there weren't as many of us, certainly, and, and there certainly weren't any, like, schools that are teaching it. Yeah. It was all it was all just sort of hobby gamers that were that were somehow getting into it or they were computer programmers who were figuring out how to how to design games. <laughs> yeah. So when did you feel like you so were I think, ready to? I think I'm speaking to two people, right? Yeah. 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 Hey. Aaron Stackpole and then me, Kevin Brandon Corbett. <laughs> OK. Yeah. yeah. So then yeah, uh, when did you feel? Both. Good to meet you, too. And uh, yeah, when did you feel like you were ready to do all the game design that you started to do? Like, like how did you know you were like, okay, I got this. Like, I can do this. 
oh, uh, yeah, well, I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> but uh, but honestly, you know, when uh, you know, you have to present a certain sort of a, amount of like like confidence in yourself. And when you're young, it's really easy to be super confident because you don't necessarily know everything that you don't know yet. Um, I, 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 I was very lucky in the sense that, you know, I knew a lot about, about role-playing games and, uh, I knew a lot about, um, how players interacted with one another and how players interacted with story. Uh, and so I was, I was able to sort of translate that pretty easily into certain kinds of games. There'd be other kinds of games even now that I'd be like, I don't, I don't think that that's, I don't know how those games work. Like if somebody offered me a job to design like a wrestling game. I don't know no. how those games work. I have no idea how those games work. Uh, that would not be a good fit for me at all. But if you needed me to build a world for a fantasy game or, uh, or, or build mechanics for, you know, character progression, I'm, I'm down with it. I'm on, I'm on it. You mentioned that you played D&D when you were younger. Did you often DM? Oh, yeah. Very frequently. Yeah. Very, very frequently. Yeah, so that's where you got your chops, really. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. From starting from age 13, uh, I think, I think running games, uh, in fact, I just literally just this morning, I taught my, uh, uh, interactive narrative class for at NIFA and I ran a game for them. So they all had, so these are screenwriters, these are people in the screenwriting department. Mm -hmm. So they had a sense of, of what, what it was like to play in one of these games, what it was like to create the world. We spent like the last three weeks, sort of world building and creating a world for this for this game to happen. And so today I ran them in a game so they had a sense of like of how it all worked. They'd never played before. Some of them had never played before. Yeah, I'm in the, the same boat too. Oh, really? You've never played a, a, a role-playing game? No, not Dungeons and uh, Dragons. Oh, but you Have played you played anything else like GURPS or White Wolf, anything or stuff? Now, like when it comes to board games, now I've only really played like role fantasy games and video games. I, well, my friends really weren't into it. Like White Wolf are they're pen and paper RPGs? <laughs> yeah. You've you've not played? Did you play pen and paper RPGs though? Nah, no. no. Wow. Oh my gosh. Know. So you've got there's a I'm, I'm young. there's a brave new world. Uh, for yeah, you right. Yeah, there. I know. I need to go out there and start playing them. <laughs> they're awesome they're the best i mean it's like it's like pure game design diluted down into like one live experience so i've been working with kevin on decoding the old 1980 tool pool of radiance save oh files. yeah good one <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know exactly what i'm talking about one of the best rpgs i've ever played <laughs> yeah kevin's tired of me saying that because i pretty much repeat that on every podcast <laughs> 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 yeah, it's a great one. Uh, I enjoyed that one. I also liked um, uh, the Planescape one. Um, How about Bard's Tale? Uh, uh, Bard's Tale, man, it's all right. You what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So, so, uh, so my my second job in the industry, or, or really my third job, because I also worked on um, Muppet Treasure Island for a brief bit, sort of just sort of helping them understand how um how to to organize a script when the script is not linear hmm. so when it's an interactive script like they, they they're like we're we're 
they, they were getting lost. Their production was getting lost because they didn't have a, a real good way of organizing. So I worked for like three weeks on Muppet Treasure Island, just sort of helping them organize a script and sort of understand how an interactive script would work. Um, but then the, the job after that was Return to Crondor, which was a big computer role-playing game based on the, on the novels by Ray Feist. Yeah. And there had been, a, it was basically a sequel. It was a, it was a sequel to a, to a game called Betrayal at Crondor, which had been a very big success. So, Kevin, um, do you remember me telling you about the Magician Master and Magician Apprentice's books a while ago when we were talking about, like, favorite fantasy? That's what he's talking about right there. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. That's exactly yeah. what those what these games are based on. Okay. Yeah, so I ended up working with on that. And so that what that what that meant was that I was working very closely with the author, Ray Feist, because oh, uh, he had awesome. very specific ideas about how things were in his world and very specific ideas about how characters were meant to be developed and which characters we could use and 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 you know all of that so uh that was that was super interesting um and uh i was super new and i probably made a ton of really rookie errors in that game in fact there's one rookie error um that i can tell you about i don't know if you've if you've played it um uh you'll know what i'm talking about but in the story, we end up splitting, you end up splitting the party a little bit. So, and and story-wise, you sort of chapter from chapter, you go back and forth between these two groups of people, and one group of people is is working hard towards in one towards one thing, and the other group of people is sort of working towards another thing, and it all comes down to. And this is the this is an error. So this is my rookie rookie error from this game. It all comes down to how the second group does hmm. like all the work that you do on the first group kind of doesn't matter okay. and that's a terrible hmm. feeling when you get to the end and you're like huh all that all that work on that on that half was like for nothing what did that what did that mean what did that matter what did that <laughs> mean for anything uh so you know those are the sorts of things you learn as you go and hopefully now we don't have to we don't have to learn as we go so much because we have experienced people like going and doing podcasts and saying, "Hey, don't do that." Exactly. <laughs> this is what we're here for. And I, awesome. So uh, we also got Sky to join the uh, the call. If you want to introduce yourself a little bit, and then uh, we'll continue the conversation. Yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, I'm Scott Rogers. Uh, like Andy, I am a video and tabletop game designer. Uh, I don't know what he has uh, talked about, but um, I'm guessing it's about all the great stuff that he's worked on. And uh, we've been friends also for a long time. We met at Sony and we, uh, well, when we're allowed to uh, be in each other's company, we are. But uh, just like the rest <laughs> of the world, we're uh, we will separated fall back out. into each other's game designer arms again. <laughs> exactly. Soon, soon enough. What did you guys work on at Sony together? Nothing. Or, no, nothing, nothing together? <laughs> no, yeah, no. It's, it's true. Just both worked there? Yeah. We, yeah, had, uh, we had kind of a... Um, uh, a Downton Abbey relationship where Andy was <laughs> upstairs in the production balcony uh, while I was toiling away down in the production pit. <laughs> so yeah, he he worked he worked on the God of War team. Oh. Uh, meanwhile, I was working in external development and working with um, uh, with studios outside of of the Santa Monica studio, uh, working on I think uh, like. Uh, 
the Neopets game yeah. uh, during that time, mm-hmm. and also uh, um, uh, Warhawk. Yep. Oh yeah, okay, Warhawk. I played a so lot those, of Warhawk. Mm-hmm. So and then and then and then Scott uh, Scott went on to THQ, and I stayed around a little bit for. Um, I, we finished up Warhawk, and then at the end, towards the end of Warhawk, uh, they needed extra help on the God of War team. So I actually went back. I went down and joined uh, that team, and I think I sat in Scott's old desk even for a little bit. Yeah. Oh, and, look uh, at that <laughs> small world. Uh, where I did I did cameras on God of War two. Did I did I leave anything interesting behind for you to find? <laughs> uh, no, the gum on the, the gum, of the, course. The gum. <laughs> so you are sitting across from tobin yeah although he had gone by that point too oh okay all right you missed out then <laughs> yeah i did dang but yeah so i was curious you guys were in uh how do you guys maintain the education and knowledge you learned in school and then, like, sometimes it feels overwhelming for students to, like, learn so much, especially game design is, like, scripting, story writing, level design. So how do you not get lost with all that knowledge? So, Andy, have you talked about your educational path already? No, not at all. Um, oh, okay. So my, my degree is in graphic design uh, mm-hmm. and, and animation. Uh, I went at UCLA. I was a design major. And when, so that part, the, 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 the skills I learned there were very generally useful. So, you know, I learned about how to how to how people see things, how people read things visually. I learned about how uh, you know production processes go. I learned how to you know like um, we did I, uh, we did handbound books as sort of a, a senior project, and uh, so you learn how to like like manage production when you're making something identical for like you're making twenty copies of something that need to be identical. Um, and so, and then the animation, like, you'll learn about, you'll learn all the traditional animation techniques and, uh, uh, and skills there. So basically what I learned was how to talk about things visually, like what, what, I, what I ended up with and the thing that the skill that I, that I find most useful in game design is that I can now talk to artists. I can talk to them in, in language that they understand and I can talk about about uh, elements in, in a way that they that they understand them and, and so they need it's easier for them to know what it is that they need to do mm-hmm. uh, I was never a coder so I never I never learned programming I I spent a little time trying to teach myself C uh, I spent like three months on it with a book called teach yourself C in 21 days and mm-hmm. I got about a third of the way through it <laughs> three months for 21 days yeah yeah didn't really work out the way it was supposed to. No, no, no. So, uh, 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 but you know, uh, so I'm I'm pretty lost when it comes to to the programming stuff. But I, you know, I I, I let the, I, the let the I let the programmers bounce ideas off of me, and by the time they're done, they've usually got it figured out. Mm, makes sense. Mm-hmm. And what so, about you, Scott? Yeah. So my education. Um, you know, I, well, Andy and I are both the same age, but there was no game programs uh, at all uh, when we were in college. Um, and my career path, uh, I ended up getting uh, two degrees. I have one in art, fine art, but with uh, emphasis in illustration. And then my other degree is in film production, but an emphasis in screenwriting, which ironically, um, both of them ended up being very useful 
uh, when I went into game design a few years later. Um, but I didn't expect to even go into video games. I, uh, I, I knew people made games as a living. I even knew where some of those companies were. But it just the part of it was the state of the art at the time. Um, oh, games were. I'm a real art snob, and game some many many games still look very ugly to me. And so uh, I, um, even though I started in the industry as an artist, um, I very quickly was getting frustrated with just the kind of things you could make. Part of it was um, some of the talent I had. I just wasn't. Um, uh, it wasn't a good fit ultimately. But um, but a lot of the early, particularly the very early video games, the uh, Atari, the home stuff, Atari 2600, and the even the Nintendo and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it all looked hideous, uh, and so I just wasn't that interested. I mean, I played them, but yeah. I but I just didn't have a lot of respect for them because I didn't think that they looked that great. It wasn't really until the Genesis and the SNES came along that I started really paying attention, uh, which is about the time I started in the industry, uh, which was kind of at the tail end of those two systems. That's interesting. Now, uh, Andy, I'm curious, what is Enigma? Isn't something like a group in uh, college? Yeah, yeah, that's my that's my my club, and, uh, yeah, and yeah. honestly, the the, the place where I. Gang. I developed the, uh, the the really really long lasting friendships. Uh, like people that I've now been friends with for like 30, 35 years and still play games with and play D&D with and do all that mm-hmm. stuff with. Um, yeah, that was the the club I mentioned, the sort of nerd club, the science fiction, mm-hmm. fantasy, role-playing game club. Awesome. Anything that led to most of your uh, job opportunities is networking and meeting all these people? Well, uh, honestly, with, with those, um, outside of that getting lucky at, uh, initially because the gal that I, I mentioned who was playing Queen Titania in my mm-hmm. Sandman game, she was also part of the club. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I'm still friends with, with, with those people. I owe her, I owe her a great deal uh, just by, by getting my foot in the door there. Okay. And now, uh, Steve, how did you land the associate producer, lead game designer, writer position right out of school? You mean Scott? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, My bad, Scott, yeah. That's okay. Steve Rogers, everybody wants to be Captain America. Yes. Um, how did I land a game position right out of school? I didn't. I um, I graduated. I was supposed to work um, at Amblin for Steven Spielberg's company, uh, and then there was a massive hurricane that wiped out all the sets of Jurassic Park, and so they canceled the position. So I was like, well, what am I going to do now? Uh, and I ended up working at an animation house for about six to eight months on some just really crappy stuff. And it was kind of a midnight shift and it was pretty horrible. And they do, um, the animation house did what every animation house does. They have a tradition, which is they fire everybody at Christmas. So I, I got laid off uh, and I was in a coffee house um, just drawing in my sketchbook. And a guy that I had worked with uh, on the newspaper in college I used to do comics for the school newspaper at Cal State Long Beach and he came up to me a guy named Stu Rose and Stu said hey Scott you know how to draw right and I was drawing in my sketchbook I'm like yes I'm drawing right now and he said do you know how to draw on a computer well I had uh, kind of grown up with Macintosh so I had always um, drawn on that and I kind of grew up with uh, I've used every version of Photoshop that's ever been made I used that was kind of my drawing tool of choice 
And so I said, yeah, what do you what do you need? What are you uh, looking for? And he said, oh, well, we need to find people who know how to draw with these programs. And he was talking about a couple of PC programs, Andy, that you might remember called um, uh, something direct. Was it direct anim and direct paint or D paint? D-Paint, oh, D-Anim. Oh, yeah, yeah, D-Paint, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so these were like industry standard for a hot second on uh, SNES and Genesis games, but I had never heard of them. And so my friend Stu said, well, we're looking for an artist at this little company I work at. We're making games. Um, why don't you spend a week at my house using my computer, and you can teach yourself these programs and put together kind of a portfolio and then come in in a week and uh, and talk to my bosses, and we'll see if we can hire you. So I said, great, that's a great offer. I'm not doing anything anyway. So I spent a week, uh, taught myself these two programs. They were pixel-based uh, animation and, and drawing programs. And then I kind of went in with my floppy disk of, uh, of art, and I interviewed with this little company, and there were like maybe, I don't know, about 12 or 14 people at this company, and they seemed super cool. And they're working on this really neat game, and they just shipped a game for the SNES and Genesis. And uh, and I said, yeah, I'd love to work here, you know. Um, and they like, yeah, we like your stuff. But at the end of the interview, the guy who ran the company said, um, uh, we'd love to hire you, but we I just found out we actually submitted an offer to another guy we talked to yesterday, and we're going to hire him. And I can't, you know, I can't back out of that. And I was like, well, oh, that's too bad. You know, you guys seem really cool and it would have been nice to have a job, but that's okay. I understand. And, uh, you know, maybe in the future our paths will cross. Uh, that name of that company was called, uh, at the time, Silicon and Synapse. Uh, do you guys know, uh, they ended up renaming themselves. Do you guys know what company that was? I'm not sure. Is it no. Santa sure. Monica? No, no. This was in Irvine, California. Irvine? Oh, yeah. okay. Irvine, is that um, Obsidian? <laughs> that's a good guess uh they ended up being a little company called blizzard oh, uh, and, if, that. <laughs> and if i had been uh hired by them i probably would have been like employee number 16 or so wow. um, and they were just starting work on warcraft when i interviewed with them uh, they had showed me the game and it looked super cool and they had shipped the lost vikings uh and so i missed my opportunity to go and be a founding member of blizzard and I would probably be living in a much larger house now if that were the case. Um, I totally but forgot that they that they made Vikings before that. That was yeah, yeah, the Lost. Was, yeah, that was a great game, the Lost Vikings. Super game. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I ended up having this disc full of artwork, uh, and I parlayed that into another job with a company down in San Diego called mm -hmm. Park Place Productions, and then that kind of launched my, or at least started my career in games. Uh, as an artist, I worked for about two or three years as an artist before changing to design. Wow, that's a crazy story. And um, Andy, what was it like working on Return to Crondor in computer RPG, and why did you move so fast through the ranks? <laughs> so um, this was the, the heady days of the CD-ROM boom. And uh, the company I was working for was a company that had been an uh, an animation company here in Burbank. And mm -hmm. um, it was uh, called Seventh Level and they were getting into games because that's everybody was getting into games. It was all about, it was all about getting into CD-ROMs and, and, and making interactive experiences on CD-ROM. Um, Seventh Guest had, you know, had, had come out, uh, uh, 
mist had come out, so everybody was was flocking to that that flag. And uh, and they hired me initially as an associate producer, and mm-hmm. uh, and then the producer I was working under, he got sort of sucked into as the as the company grew, he got sort of sucked up into a a vice president position, and so that left the producer position open under him, and then they basically sucked me up into that producer position. But again, I was I was I was way too young and way too experienced to be in that position. Honestly, um, looking back on it, I'm like, mm, that was not that was not great, and it probably ended up just that alone. My my inexperience on that probably ended up uh, adding another year to that project. Andy, you should tell them uh, how um, how you your new method for uh, rising up and becoming the boss in game development. Well, I mean, uh, you gotta you gotta fight your way through several levels and then uh, kill the boss. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's, uh, <laughs> I like that one a lot. <laughs> Just tell everybody, you know, you got this. Level up, take down the boss. No big deal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, so you moved quickly to the ranks because of just the the time period. Yeah, well, just the time period. The company was growing yeah. super fast. Uh, everybody was spending a whole lot of money. There was there mm-hmm. there just you know the the company needed you know people more people, mm-hmm. and so yeah. uh, I just sort of got sucked up and in, into it just because uh, they they thought I was I was I was functional. Okay. I mean, it works right if you can do the job. And honestly, there wasn't anybody. There was literally nobody at the at the company who knew more about the game. So they, I, you know, to a certain degree, that mm. made sense to them too. There wasn't anybody who 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 knew the game inside and out like I did as a designer for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sense. this this is this is something that I uh, I tell my students all the time, which is there's going to be moments where you have these opportunities, uh, and if it's something that you are interested in doing. Um, you should definitely step up and say, "Hey, I'm interested in doing this. This is this is how I partially how I transitioned out of um, art into game design uh, was the there was a need for some writing, and I had this background where I like to write and I like I know how to write screenplays and things like that. And so when the time came, people said, "Well, who's going to write this?" And I kind of raised rose my hand and said, "I like doing that kind of thing." And they said, "Great, you can do that." And and that kind of led to, um, you know, me transition partially be due to me transitioning over just because I was the guy in the room that raised their hand. Mm-hmm. So you know, you should never be afraid to go up to somebody and say, you know, I am really interested in this thing, this other thing, you know, whether it's doing sound effects or storyboarding cutscenes or directing actors or um, or you know, there's a lot of ancillary work. Uh, that it was required for video games that people tend to forget about. Uh, and then it can get kind of overwhelming because everyone is so concentrated on the three major disciplines, the, the art, you know, the art, the design and the programming, that music and, and acting and screenplays and storyboards and, and things like that tend to fall through the cracks. Um, now, a lot less nowadays than they did back in our day. But um, but they weren't um, they ended up being opportunities, I think, rather than uh, problems, at least for me. And here's another here's another story about about my meteoric rise through the ranks there. (laughs) Um, uh, As as a sort of associate producer at at the beginning, I was sort of doing all the design work, but I was also doing like budgetary work on it. And when they 
they moved me from associate producer to producer and told me how much I was getting paid. I told them, I was like, well, the budget doesn't support that. You can't actually pay me that. And my boss at the time, God bless him, he marched me out the back door of the building and uh, lectured me out in the parking lot. He said, you never, never turn down money because yeah. we've got other people in that building who have the same job title and they have mortgages and they have children. And, you know, you're 26. You don't have these things yet, but you will. And you will fucking take the money. First rule of acquisition, according to the Ferengis, once they that's give you right. the money, don't give it back. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so so I can tell a similar story, which is I was working for one of the larger um, video game companies and um, and I had an office, you know, a private office and uh, I was running a team and there kind of came a point where I was like, uh, I don't see the team enough. They're not coming to me and I'm not getting out to them as much. I'm going to move my office out uh, into the um, into the pit where the rest of them were. So that way I can see them on a regular basis, communicate in that. Um, on one hand, this is a great idea. But when that's the other thing, though, is if you have a position of power and you have like privileges that go with it, don't give them up. That was a mistake. I, in the end, um, it ended up causing more problems than solving, and I should have just stuck with the office. Mm -hmm. And come up with different solutions for, for getting getting more communication out. Yeah, yeah, having more regular meetings or doing a walk around or something. But yeah, if you, um, if you have got into a certain position, um, you should do what you can to protect it. And I know that that doesn't always jibe with what other people say, but in my experience, um, you need those defense mechanisms sometimes you need that you need you need to sometimes kind of show that you're in that position of authority and you need to to maintain it mm -hmm. it's weird people are the worst but uh, <laughs> but, uh but you gotta sometimes yeah. you gotta look out for yourself sometimes you gotta look yeah. out for others it's a it's a real balancing act mm -hmm. and i think i think my general distaste for that like I hate politics and so I think that there's a there's a reason why I like I've had titles but nothing like I've never been an official creative director I've never been a you know a head of a studio or anything like that and I think my general distaste of those kind of politics is what's kept me just making games but it's also what I enjoy the most I mm -hmm. I would much rather make than than um you know, be in charge of <laughs> typical engineer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, it helps to know early on what you like and what yeah. you're good at. Yeah. And so if you have enough bad experiences, that will help guide your, your career. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Being self-aware is really important because if you don't like it, if you're not passionate about it. How are you going to keep going when it going gets tough? Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, Andy well, from, you know, uh, mortgage and you get some kids <laughs> a little bit of motivation <laughs> yeah i know that's well that's yeah that's what that's why you end up sometimes in those positions that you don't like because you now have all these other obligations so you have to you have to balance it you know it's not i'm not saying don't have a life don't have a family they're all wonderful and and worth having but if you are you know if your interests lay in another direction you know, you, sometimes you got to make choices like that. And I know plenty of people that have made choices like that. And I don't begrudge them it. You know, it's what, they, it's what they've what they decided to do. 
Now, uh, Andy, from a learning perspective, what was it like working on God of War Two and Warhawk, and how did you like were able to teach that in a classroom setting? So, um, so God of War Two was uh, super interesting in that um, I came on towards the end. Uh, they just needed help putting cameras in because, if you remember correctly, the cameras in that were really interesting. Um, it was not a following, just a generic following camera. They had they had built these tools where we could actually place cameras in the system and in the scene and the camera and give them specific behaviors. Um, and my coming from a, a role playing game and, and sort of wargaming background, my instinct was to pull the camera back so that you get, have a better sense of of where everything is. You had more sort of uh, tactical awareness. Uh, but there, but but they quickly uh, uh, instructed me that no, 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 pull the camera in as close as possible, and then just add more cameras uh, so that they can they could switch around and cut, and people would get a sense of it. But but the emotion of the game is is from Kratos, and so you want to be as close as you can on Kratos. Mm-hmm. And so that's a lesson that I can very easily teach in uh, uh, when when I do teach uh, like level design classes and game game design classes and talking about mm-hmm. camera where camera is so important um, and camera is super crucial. Camera is probably the most important thing that you're going to have in a 3D game, like how mm-hmm. you use the camera and how what you tr- what you try to show with the camera is so important. And God of War, the, basically, the camera always points you towards the next thing that you have to do. Always. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's super subtle, but it absolutely helps people play. It helps hmm. people play the game, and it helps show people what's cool about the game. Uh, and so those are things that I can very easily talk about, and very easily teach, and very easily show show examples of when I when I teach sort of level design classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's awesome, and it's it's cool because the new all got award. The camera was just like one cut. One, the whole time going through and apparently it was like a, a very difficult process they were fighting Corey Bar- Barlog on that about like hey we, we can't do it like this but he's like no the game has to be like this yeah. and I feel like you only learn that over like time where you're like you know what this is I feel like the right thing to do and, and yeah, just over experience you yeah absolutely. and then I also wanted to ask you because I know you have to get off soon but yeah, what dare you on now in Marvel Puzzle Quest <laughs> <laughs> let me tell, I'll tell you hang on let me check uh, uh, <laughs> Well, I'm on day um, 100 and 1042. Dang. Two hundred more days. Dang. That's a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm almost three years into it now. Oh. And what keeps so, yeah, you playing? I do have to get off this call, but uh, this has been a pleasure, and I'm happy to do it again anytime you guys want. Um, uh, give me a shout. I do need to run, though. Uh, yeah, no problem. Uh, have Thanks fun with on, you're Andy. in good hands with Scott though. Oh yes. Take Thanks care, for joining bye. us, Andy. Have a good one. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. You were saying earlier oh, about uh, those positions of uh, positions of authority and things like that, and you know, not letting go of things. Ironically, for the family reason, I moved out of the game industry into corporate because I could make more money. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I I know a lot of people that have dropped out of gaming because, um, uh, you know, all types of reasons, you know, and it's um, it happens. It's just uh, it's a hard it's a hard thing to to keep a hold of. You know, it's a there's a lot of reasons why people leave or have to leave. Um, And, uh, you know, 
that makes me much more appreciative of any opportunity that I have to work in games just because oh, sure. I know how hard it is for people to stay in it. Yeah, for sure. Now, what does keep you sane? Motivation, family, the love of it? What keeps me sane? No, what keeps you sane in the industry? Um, my just... wife says that I'm like a beaver and I can't stop gnawing. And But the gnawing is making games rather than chewing on wood. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I'm always making games. I mean, I... I'm officially not working in the video game industry right now. You know, I'm, I've been teaching and I'm uh, doing um, uh, a lot of tabletop stuff and I'm um, there's some other side projects that I'm kind of working on. So I'm not like making a triple A console game or anything like that right now, but I'm still making games and I'm still <laughs> applying the things that I know about making games. So that's never going to leave me. I'm always going to be making games in one form or another. And that's really the great thing about game design, particularly uh, as we teach it, uh, Andy and I teach our classes, which is the knowledge that you learn from making games is applicable in many, many ways. It's not just, well, I can only make a God of War or, you know, something like that. Um, I... I find that it's a, a very useful skill, uh, even in things that many people wouldn't consider games. It's the 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 fundamentals still apply. And what challenges did you go through throughout your career, and how did you get over them? Um, well, I mean, a, a big part of a challenge, the most challenging thing, are other people. Um, <laughs> like I said, you know, uh, pe- people are a pain in the ass sometimes. Um, uh, but I'm not saying you have to go it alone or do it by yourself. You need other people to make games. Games are a collaborative uh, process. And so finding the right people to work with is the most important thing. I always tell, I have friends that have collaborators uh, and partner, business partners and things like that. And I'm always telling them, hang on to those people. Those people are maybe your most valuable asset. Uh, that If you have somebody that you're friends with, that you can work with, uh, that you can create something with, that you're aligned in some capacity vision-wise or you complement each other skill-wise, hang on to those because those are super valuable. Um, yeah. You know, um, but that said, that's not to say that you can't make games uh, by yourself. You can, um, but you're always ultimately going to need other people to play test uh, and to get their feedback. And um, and that is a, that iterative process of getting that feedback is, a very, very important part of the process. Uh, you can't make a game without finding out how other people like it because mm-hmm. ultimately games are meant to be played by other people. Otherwise, they're just, they're nothing. <laughs> well, pretty much, because you might have your idea that, oh, this is fun, but then someone plays it and they're like, I don't know where the fun is supposed to be, but it's not there. And you're like, okay, let me let me fix it. Let me bring my vision into life more and let me... Right. A lot of us make the games that we want to play, but that <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean that other people want to. Like, I really like, you know, moving numbers around. Right. Not everybody likes doing that. <laughs> well, I, I w- to your point, I would say that you should still make that game because um, you will find people that also like it. There's an mm-hmm. audience for everything. 
Um, so don't dismiss your own personal interests as you know not worth uh, worthless or marketable or whatever. There is a certain amount of knowledge that you should have about what people like, and there that can help craft your experience. But what makes your game special is you. Um, I I guarantee that all three of us could make a a run and gun game and we would all come up with something completely different and we would all have something that we think is interesting and cool and that's what's going to make the game interesting and stand out rather than just trying to regurgitate what other people are making <laughs> now uh yeah. going back uh to your point about um all right now i just had this great brilliant thought and it's going away uh <laughs> um, we'll come back yeah well kevin what were you talking about uh, uh, about fine-tuning, taking feedback. From oh, the, right, 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 right. Yeah, so um, uh, about iteration and um, uh, game design. Um, nope, I lost it again. <laughs> what were you, what were you, keep going. What were you saying? You, you said something that was really smart, so I want to I talk about that. Um, me or Aaron? Yeah, you. Aaron, or, okay. Um, I, that's what I was saying um well, well we'll come back to it because that's that's all i said pretty much to it um okay so yeah so let's talk about more like practicing game design because it could be a realm of things like writing level design music uh programming in a small sense how does one truly like practice game design to feel confident make about games it? make games make games yeah I so guess. you can you can make very simple easy paper prototype games um, there's lots of great examples of this uh, for video games. I, uh, you know, I talk about making maps and things in my book, Level Up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another really great guy to uh, look at uh, is a fella named Stone Labrandi, uh, who is an educator at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, he works for Riot Games. Uh, he's a big proponent of uh, paper prototypes, and uh, if Andy were still here, uh, he would tell you that uh, Stone is part of a group that teaches every year at the Game Developers Conference. Him, uh, Andy, Mark LeBlanc, and a few others run a really great workshop over, I think it's two or three days, uh, where they talk about a uh, very rapid iteration of games uh, and just starting on paper, draw out some ideas that you might have for what you think. Oh, I was talking about fun. That's that's what I wanted to address, Kevin, okay. uh, was the idea of, you know, you're thinking of something that might be fun and then you create a prototype and you're like, well, this isn't very fun. Mm -hmm. um, so in my book that I mentioned, Level Up, uh, I have in it what I call the theory of unfun, because I think fun is possibly the worst metric you can gauge something by. Because uh, Aaron, uh, let me ask you a question. Do you like to eat ice cream? Aaron, you there? Uh, oh, Aaron? sorry, it was muted. Yeah, of course. Uh, and Kevin, do you like to eat ice cream? Oh, I love ice cream, yeah. Right. Now, do you like to eat Two ice creams in a row? Yeah. Not usually. I mean, not I, usually. Like, I like what about a lot of ten, What about 10 ice cream cones in a row? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not, right? But we could say that maybe... Kevin's like, I don't know. 10 ice cream cones. You like, could say you like eating ice cream. You could even say eating an ice cream is fun, right? There's an enjoyment, a pleasure to it. But, but doing it too much is not fun, right? Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. let me let me ask you another question. Kevin, do you like roller coasters? Oh, I love roller coasters. Aaron, do you like roller coasters? Um, yeah, I'm okay with them. He's okay with them. And me, 
I can like it depends on which one it is, but I can either give or take them. I don't like yeah. stuff with loops and things like that, right? But you could say that That's the fun. most most people consider riding a roller coaster fun, right? Or at least they, that's why they ride roller coasters is because it's fun. However, not everybody thinks they're fun. Aaron obviously doesn't think they're that fun. And I, you know, I'm kind of 50-50 on it, right? So once again, fun is not a reliable metric for gauging something. It's, hmm. it's all, it's too uh, personal. It is too uh, opinionated. So, so how do you uh, apply <laughs> that to game design, right? Because right. you might say, well, I want my game to be fun. But if everybody's opinion is all over the place on what is fun, it's going to be hard to pin down what's fun about your game. So therefore, I did a little judo flip on that idea, and I look at the unfun. So, uh, Aaron, when you're playing a video game and the camera isn't doing what you want it to do, is that fun or unfun? That's unfun. Right. And Kevin, if the controls are laggy and they're not responding as quickly as you'd like them to be, is that fun or unfun? Unfun. Right. Because it's easy for us to tell what is not fun. Matter of fact, as humans, <laughs> it's much easy for us to find. If you go online, there's a. let me tell you about a place called the Internet. And the Internet is full of people talking about what they find unfun. They will tell you all day long how much <laughs> they dislike things. Right? So part of our job as game designers is to have the ability to look at those things that are unfun or to talk to people and say, what do you not like about this? And our okay. job as game designers is to remove the unfun. And in theory, if we start with a fun game idea and we remove all the unfun that creeps into it as we're making our game, in theory, what should we be left with? Just fun the fun. Game. Just the fun, exactly. So, so that is my theory of unfun. I, I like uh, that. But I have to ask you, what's the positive corollary? Right? What, is, what so, do you mean is the positive corollary? So take, so yeah, take, so take for an example. So everything that you just said there was basically what we did for Half-Life. That was how we turned the original version of Half-Life into the Half-Life that everybody played, was we went right. through it, removed all of the unfun. That was literally right. exactly what we did to make Half Life. Okay, that's right. It turned out. It turned out well, and it and it turned out fantastic. But here's the thing. So there were a couple of other things that we had as part of our kind of like our our, our guiding principles, and one of them was that you should not like nothing should happen to you unless you take an action in the game and that was how we kept the pacing moving forward every time you moved into a new place there was always something new that happened there you know that was kind of consistent within that area right okay so the positive side of the removing the unfun was also finding the things that people enjoyed as in relation to progression and right. focusing so, on that. So, what's what's your so side of that? You're talking about what I call the action. Mm. Mm -hmm. The primary action is the thing that the player does the most in the game. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, what is the primary action of the old school arcade game Pac-Man? Moving and eating pills. Right. Well, yeah, moving, right? The eating right. is secondary, but the movement yeah, is primary, true. right? Right, right. I yeah, think everything in Pac-Man is based around movement. You're either moving towards the power uh, pellet to get it, yeah. you're moving away from the ghosts, you're collecting yeah. the pills, or when you eat the power pellet and become energized, then you chase after the ghost, right? Or you move towards the fruit. All right, what is the primary action of Metal Gear Solid? Sneaking. 
Yeah, sneaking, right? So everything you do in that game is sneaking. There's a reason why Snake has a low number of ammo for his weapons because mm. uh, the designer didn't want him to just run around and shoot everybody. He said, I'm going to give uh, Snake a very low amount of ammo so he will only use the gun as a last recourse or in very specific situations. So everything in the game design is geared towards the primary action. Mm -hmm. Now, you can have I, the term primary action, though, is a little misleading, but that's OK. I'm a game designer. We you we <laughs> kind of fudge our terminology all the time anyway. Uh, let me tell you how many uh, definitions there are for the word level. But anyway, um, <laughs> The, uh, the, 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 you can have more than one primary action. So, for example, Grand Theft Auto is a game in which I've identified three primary actions. You guys know what those are? I would say shooting, driving, and, um, ooh, I don't know what's the last one. The, thir the third Adventure? one's a little vaguer, but it's exploring, right? Mm, I mean, okay. it's, you're doing it by foot, you're doing it by kind of jumping around and, and doing things like that, right? But you're right, it's driving, shooting, or fighting and exploring. Mm -hmm. And those are the three primary actions. And you can't do other things in that game, really, at least in the initial one. You you couldn't uh, go and have like a, a tea party with somebody or you couldn't uh, go shopping or you yeah. couldn't, you know, there, there wasn't. It you can was, do yoga now. <laughs> what's that? You can do yoga now in the game. Yeah, now you can do why. yoga, you right? Can't. So they've, they've, they've kind of muddied the waters a little bit. That's OK, though. It's a in sequels. You start more things kind of get added in, right? More notes to the to the primary stuff, it kind of, sometimes it can get to be a little too much, um, you know, uh, but other games still uh, manage to keep that balance. But anyway, um, the, the primary action guides not only the player, but really it should also guide the design. And so it sounds like, Aaron, when you were making Half-Life, you were making player agency and the, the player interaction was the primary function of uh, Gordon Freeman, right? It was all player initiated. And so being mindful of that, saying nothing's going to happen unless the player initiates it, that's essentially the primary action. That's what you're trying to get the player to do in the game. And I'm sure that you had a dozen different tricks of getting the player to do what you wanted them to do in order to move the story and the game forward. Fell off the map. Yeah, interestingly, that was one of our, our major challenges during the level design. Um, so we would do, you know, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what <laughs> what you would call them these days, but they were playtesting sessions where we brought in just random people to sit down and play, you know, a level that somebody designed. And that was also, you know, part of that removing the unfun part. But often what we were doing was essentially, you know, the designers would make a space and, you know, they would have an obvious, you know, thing in their mind. Yeah, obviously, you know, that big, you know, yellow thing over there is what you have to click on to get through you know, or whatever, you know, whatever that happens to be. And we would just we would require the designer who made the level to sit there with a notepad and watch the person struggle. <laughs> That's great. That is, that is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, and this is a great lesson that I. I learned myself uh, when I made Maximo for Capcom because we used to do these playtest sessions where we would sit behind big glass, one-way uh, glass rooms, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the players would be in the other room, and the design team was, like, screaming, ah, yeah. go this way, go that way. Or when they would it's do so what you wanted them to do, everybody would be like, hooray, you know, this, this big cheer came up. Mm -hmm. Now... This is a, a, a very good lesson for any game designer because of a couple of reasons. One, 
Um, I always tell my students uh, that you, as a game designer, do not come in the box. So uh, mm -hmm. you cannot be there to yell at the player or tell them they're playing it wrong or something like that. The other thing that happens, though, with, with game designers, particularly young game designers, is you get what I call designer blinders. So uh, you are looking at the world like this, that there is one way to play the game. There is the right way. There is my way because I am the game designer and I made the game this way. And how how you should, how you know, dummy, you should be playing it the right <laughs> way, right? But the problem is when you have these blinders on, uh, you've already been playing the game a ton of times. You've made the game. You know how it's supposed to be played. You are the world's <laughs> expert in your game, Right. Now here comes the new player, and guess what they don't know? <laughs> Anything you know. <laughs> Anything, right? So, so as game designers, we have to rip off our designer blinder, blinders, and we have to put ourselves back in the seat of the first-time player. Because most gamers, unless it's like a, a multiplayer shooter or something like that, most players do not play a game more than once. They, right. I mean, maybe they'll go back and speedrun or something like that. But mm -hmm. for the most part... Think about all the games that you've played in your life and how many games you've actually gone back and played several times, <laughs> right? And I've played, I have played <laughs> hundreds of games and there's not a lot of games that I've gone back to play over and over again to the point where I like now know exactly what to do, right? So we have to assume that every player is going to just play it one time and that's it. And so we have to still make sure mm -hmm. that that's the best experience and, and the most fun experience that they can have. So rather than um, us, you know, uh, shouting at them and saying, how dare you not know this, we have to do everything we can as game creators to enable them to be successful. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's actually a really great way to put that, honestly. As a designer, it's your job to make sure that the person who is playing your game can be successful at playing your game. I mean, right. And, <laughs> yeah. And first time game designers often will get into this us, me versus them. And that's mm -hmm. a mistake. Yeah, I, no. my personal game design mantra is love thy player. You want, you want to be the game, a good game designer is like a hand that is pushing the player up by their butt to the next level of the game. <laughs> right. We want to enable a success because when you finish a game, and you succeed and you win that game, how do you feel? Amazing. Yeah, wow. amazing, right? Yeah. And then let's say, uh, Kevin, you just finished. What's the last game that you played that felt amazing? Uh, Hellblade. No, yeah, Hellblade. Senua's Sacrifice. Right. So when you got done playing that game, did you call up Aaron and say, hey, Aaron, I just played this awesome game. You should play it. I should have. No, I, I told you mentioned <laughs> something about it in the Facebook group, though. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah. he so he mentioned something about it, mm. and then Aaron goes, "Hey, uh, my friend Kevin, I like him, and he seems he's a pretty smart guy, and he likes the same type of games I do, or maybe he even likes games I don't like, but this he's so excited about this that I'm going to play this game." So then Aaron says, "Oh, I should check that out," and then Aaron buys that game and he plays it, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that's pretty cool," or "Or you're totally wrong, Kevin," or whatever. <laughs> But, <laughs> but the good thing is this, right? And and Kevin, the next game that those guys that made that game, are you gonna check it out? Are you gonna buy it? Yes, I'm all absolutely in. right. Yeah. So here's the here's the horrible truth about game design that every game designer needs to hear, and most of them don't. Game design 
is not really about you doing your creative vision. It's not you about making art. It's not you about expressing yourself. It's about making something that somebody likes so much that they will buy your next thing. Because you know what? Ultimately, your job is to be a game designer. And if people don't buy your games, guess what you're not going to be? A game designer. A game designer, exactly. So so the reason why guys like Andy and I are a success is because we've been able to work for 25 years as game designers. Because making games is an awesome job, and I have been fortunate enough to work on enough cool things that people have liked to go, oh, I might want to buy the next one. Now, I'm no name brand, right? I'm no Tim Schafer. I'm no Will Wright. I'm no Shigeru Miyamoto, who are name brand designers that people go, oh, my God, Shigeru Miyamoto is going to make another game. I'm buying that, you know, and I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10, right? (laughs) Like that's. You know, that's just that you can that's you could be the goal to get to that, right? To be a beloved game designer. But I'm happy enough that my games have been successful enough to keep me employed as a game creator. And every game designer, even if you're like, oh, I'm not in this for the money, I'm not in this for the fame, that's fine, but you still need to be in it enough. You still need to be invested enough in that idea in order to keep working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that matters in AAA and in indie games and, and anything you need any to make game. money. Yeah. Yeah. Any mm-hmm. game, right? If you want to make a living at making games, you need to make sure that people buy your stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that was deep. I really, really hit me. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people a lot of people don't like to hear that, but it's the truth. I mean, yeah. That's true. That's true though, because it's like, why are you getting in the industry? Well, I like making games, but it's also like, don't you want to keep making games? So you have to yeah, make a absolutely. game that people will play. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now, when getting into that, how would you someone prepare for a game design interview? Making games. Make games. Mm-hmm. Make games. Yeah. yeah. Like- if Kevin, if you show up and you say, "I have played every Mario game ever made," have you played every Mario game ever made? No. All I've right. That's okay. What, what's a played. What's some game that you could say? Hey, I've played every game ever made. All the Batman Arkham games. Right. Guess what, Kevin? I've played all of them, too. All that makes you is a gamer, Mm. right? But does that make you a game designer? Not at all. No, not at all, right? Now, if you came in and said, you know what? I was so inspired by Batman Arkham that I made my own Batman game. Now, first of all, I'm a huge Batman fan, so I want to see that. I want to see your Batman game, right? Mm -hmm. So if you show me this playable Batman game and it isn't absolute garbage, then I'm going to (laughs) go, Well, this guy, A, he likes games so much that he's made his own. B, he likes Batman, so now we have something in common, right? So that's going to that's gonna move you further up the chain. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the secret isn't to like Batman. The secret is to make games. Um, so uh, if you make uh, games, now as uh, someone who's looking to hire somebody, who am I going to be more likely to hire? The person who's never made a game before or somebody who has, no matter how good or bad the game is? Right. Mm-hmm. And do you, all right, here's the other dirty secret. I teach at a, at a university that um, teaches game design. That's how I make my living right now is I okay. teach. So I want students to come to the New York Film Academy in Burbank so you can take classes from Andy and myself because we are fun, cool teachers to learn from. But <laughs> you don't have to go to school to make games. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, yeah, I that's, mean, you should. You should yeah, totally you should. come to the New York Film Academy yeah, of course. <laughs> and take classes, but, but dot, no, you... dot, dot. You know, uh, I think the very first game that I ever wrote was in DOS 2.0, GW Basic. It was uh, three fireballs that fell down the screen, and you had a little spaceship that you had to dodge. And that was what turned me off from being a game programmer. Because that was really hard. Yeah, it <laughs> like, is hard. I was like that, nine years old, so it was like sounds ridiculous. sounds like we have very similar origin stories. Aaron. <laughs> I I had a similar thing. I was programming on a this is how old I am on a trash eighty a, a Tandy yeah. computer, and back in the day <laughs> when I was learning how to program, you would buy these magazines. Yep. And on the cover would say, make yep. your own asteroids clone. Yep, and like, it had awesome. code to type in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I would type in the all the instructions to make my own asteroids clone. <laughs> I was very excited. I had a little ASCII, you know, it shot uh, asterisks, and uh, my yep. ship was uh, the letter uh, V upside down. It was all very uh, high-profile uh, high, uh, graphics at the time. Oh, yeah. And then I, I hit start, and nothing happened. And I went, well, I must have done something wrong. So I went back through that whole magazine and I looked for, you know, what I did wrong. And I fixed what I thought I maybe got wrong. And I hit play again. And guess what happened? Nothing, right? And then I'm like, now what do I do? And I'm like, this is stupid. And I threw away the magazine and I deleted the code. And that ended my career as a programmer. Because there was no support. Now, the, the, the good news is this. About... Three years ago, I was working for a VR company making some really cool VR games. And one day, uh, my artist, who was building my levels for me, um, he was on vacation for like a week. And I was sitting around going, Ugh, I, I wish he was here because I really would love to just get started on this. And I finally just went, you know what? Screw this. I don't need this guy. I'm just going to do it myself. So I went online and I looked up uh, Unity and I looked for some tutorials. And I started following the tutorials, and within three days, I had a playable demo in VR with actually hand and feet sensors uh, of this game, right? Which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, like when I was learning C sharp through this Unity tutorial, I'm like, if all the support and all this, like they they tell you how to <laughs> rewrite your code when you screw up, and there's you go online on a server and you say, hey, I'm having this problem, and like ten different people chime in, and there's 30 different ways to solve the problem. And yeah. if all of it existed when I was a kid back in the 80s, I probably would have been a programmer, right? Because it's it was so easy to, to make stuff nowadays. So kids yeah. now, I say kids, but anybody <laughs> nowadays who is like, oh, I don't know if I should be, I'm like, make you can make anything now. You can make, there's nothing keeping you from making games because it's all out there. There's so many ways to learn and everything is free. That's what's so awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, Unreal Unity's free. Blender's free. There's like yeah, no excuses. I mean, the only thing I think that's not free is Maya, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of pricey. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys hang on like grim death to, for their money, right? But oh um, man, but I mean, yeah. think about who their who their customers are. I mean, movie right. studios and game it, studios. They can afford yeah. you know eight hundred dollars a month per license. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's a reason for why they do what they do, but. <laughs> need them there's plenty of other alternatives you know and mm -hmm. and libraries i mean like for that vr game i ended up buying like i was making a game about essentially like a little ghostbusters game and i bought like a whole set of a haunted house and ghosts and animations and everything i needed to make a really cool looking demo mm-hmm
Mm. Yeah, and that's yeah. also what's awesome about the game dev TV community is that anybody can just post the problem they have, any questions. They can even showcase their work, and somebody will respond, either one of the technical assistants or people in the community that will help answer questions, that will support you for what you're making, be like, great job making your first game, like keep it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the game developer community is is mm-hmm. mostly wonderful. And the other great <laughs> thing about it is if, you know, Kevin, you're like, hey, I want to make a game. You just go on one of those uh, communities and say, I'm looking to make a game. Who wants to join me? And yeah. I would guarantee you'll have people going, sure, I will. I will. I will. Let's let's make a game. You know, mm-hmm. everybody is so hungry to make it at, that there's so much opportunity out there that everybody who wants to make it. <laughs> should just be making games because <laughs> it's just so easy now. It's it's so easy compared to when I was uh, starting in games. Yeah, for sure. So now, what do you see most students messing up when they try to go out there into the world and get the first job? Um, I don't know because a lot of my students have done really well. Mm-hmm. I have students that have worked for Sony and Disney and Ubisoft and... Um, They've made games like Ori and the Blind Forest and God of the 2018 God of War. And uh, I have like one kid who he didn't even go into games, but he ended up working on the VFX team that did the Lion King, the remake. Mm. You know, so I've had a really I always tell them, though, when they graduate, you know, I want you to go and be successful because then I get to brag on them on like podcasts like this, you know, video yeah, there you go. shows like this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um I would say that the biggest thing that kind of holds them back is them feeling like they have to work for a AAA company Um, because most people who want to make games feel like that's really the only option to work for a Sony or Ubisoft or Square or whatever, and it isn't. There are hundreds of other types of jobs that are related to games that they could do. And and I teach a class at the New York Film Academy that essentially is for the graduating seniors uh, from the program, from the MFA program. And I spend about eight weeks telling them what it's like to work for major companies because I've worked for some of the biggest. And then I spend the next two weeks telling them why they shouldn't uh, because I want them to realize that they have options, that it's not just Sony, it's not just... EA, it's not just Disney, it's not just any of those guys, but they should, you know, go indie or there's little studios or there's there's even tons of opportunity in adjacent gaming. I mean, I worked for five years uh, doing theme park stuff and I worked another two years doing VR stuff. And these are adjacent industries. They're not console, you know, AAA companies, but they, they actually they paid better than when I worked for those big companies. And mm-hmm. sometimes the job was more fun and definitely a lot of the people were less assholes, part of my French. <laughs> no worries. You know, I, I like that because that's true. There's a lot more than just working at a studio. You could be working on film like Lion King, working at the amusement park. So yeah. And actually, what is Make It Mingle? I saw that. Is that a uh, get together oh, at the... Yeah, yeah make, so Make and Mingle is one of the, so I, at New York Film Academy, the other thing I do is I run their programming. Um, we do all types of game-related programming. Um, when it was okay for us to uh, actually mingle, interact right. with each other, yeah, Make <laughs> and Mingle. So that was essentially uh, an opportunity. Game designers as a species, we tend to hide in our little troll holes. 
and we uh, we work on our games and we you know we get stuff done, but often we tend to forget to, that there's the rest of the world out there. And so the Make and Mingle was an opportunity for people to come to the New York Film Academy to eat some free pizza, to use our free Wi-Fi, and to um, interact with other human beings that like to make games. And so, Kevin, if you were working on a game in your house, uh, you know, you might say, oh, well, I'll come over for a few hours and I'll hang out and I'll show people, or if I might have some questions. And there's other, lots of other smart people, people from the industry, people that are indies, people that are amateurs, people that are experts, um, are all showing off their stuff and just having a good time and meeting mm -hmm. people. And, and we've even had a couple of people kind of team up and say, oh, let's make something together. Now, now we don't um, have that opportunity to physically get together and eat pizza and hang out. So we're trying to do that virtually. So we're doing things like um, we have what we call uh, the game uh, game workshop. We have a lot of different titles for these things. I think you have one but tomorrow, you, right? Yeah, we're, yeah, well, we're having one tomorrow. That's um, actually from our Masters of Game Design program, which is a lecture series, uh, a speaker series in which I interview um, well-known or um, uh, experienced game designers. So Andy was a guest. Uh, we recently had Bill Roper from Blizzard. We've had um, Ted Price from Insomniac. Uh, we our next guest is Stone Labrandi from Riot Games. So these are all uh, game creators that have lots of experience, that have worked on prominent games, that have a lot of knowledge to solve. And it's also an opportunity for you to meet them now, albeit virtually now, um, but uh, to uh, ask them questions that you might have about their method or their work or things like that. But we're really what our goal at NIFA is to let you know that not only are we a place to learn about making games, but we are a place for you to network with other people mm -hmm. in the game industry. And so whether it's through our Masters of Game Design program, it's through our game workshop series. Uh, we also do uh, what's called a game deconstruction, uh, which uh, usually me uh, plays a game for about 80 hours. And then I tell you why it's great or why it sucks from a game design perspective. And all of these are, uh, we video all of these. So they're available on YouTube. So if you look up the New York Film uh, 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 New York Film Academy speaker series, you'll find uh, my um, Masters of Game Design and my deconstruction videos. Um, but we also have been doing all these over Zoom. So if you go to our meetup page, and I think our um, it's called the New York Film Academy Game Mentor Program or series or something like that. Uh, if you go onto that site, uh, you can find our meetups and and we get they're pretty well attended. We get about 40, 50 people uh, showing up from all over the world. We've had people from India and UK and Poland and South America and and just you know uh, we're growing and because we we I I know a lot of these people and um, and I they're all smart and I love talking to them and I think everybody would benefit from hearing what they have to say. Um, and then also, um, you know, if if a couple of people go, hey, this seems like a cool place and I want to learn how to make games, then all better. You know, then we get more students and then I get to mentor them personally. And that's that's great, too. That's awesome. And are those events like free for everyone? Like, can yeah, you, yeah. Free, even the free ones for that everybody, are like the, live and in, in person. Yeah, yeah, they're live. The, the next one is tomorrow okay. at four Pacific time, uh, seven o'clock Eastern time. It's on Zoom, 
Um, you have to go through our Zoom page. There's a link that we ask you to sign up just because we want to keep things secure. We don't want Zoom bombers coming in. Um, but sense. yeah, it's uh, it's it's free, totally free for anybody. Doesn't matter. And, and it's all ages friendly. So if you have like younger kids that are interested in game design, they're welcome as well. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Because usually, you know, those events sometimes just for the students of the school. But that's cool. No, no, it's open to everyone. Nice. This is for everyone. So hopefully we'll see you guys there tomorrow. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, well, I'm on a flight, but maybe I'm, I'm trying to make it. We'll see All right. depending on the flight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you're you're so, always welcome, Kevin. Of course. I think I'm gonna make the one uh, the 27th. I think of another one. Yeah, that's the, the that's a workshop. That's a yeah. pitch workshop where you kind of show up with your idea and say, "Hey, I want to make this a game. Let's talk about it." And I tell you um, whether I like it or not, but let everybody else have a chance to kind of chime in as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was cool. I was like, "Why not? Why not at least see what it's like?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so while you're teaching, what do you think students struggle the most with? Homework. Homework. What is the Doing homework? Their homework man- managing time. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is this is, is something good. I tell my students all the time. I, I, I care about the quality of the materials they're turning in, but I care more about them getting it in on time because one of the most important things about working in games is setting deadlines and mating them. And uh, if you can't make your deadlines, you're not gonna keep your job. Um, So if you can make deadlines, if the work that you create is not quite where it needs to be, that's okay, you can go back and improve it. But you never get a second chance to be on time. Mm -hmm. And I I almost- on the crunch hours. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what avoids crunch. Crunch is a completely avoidable phenomenon. The reason why crunch is created is bad planning and bad time management. And mm-hmm. and I hate crunch time. I, and I don't just hate it because um, it is uh, tiring and draining and demoralizing, but it's a sign of irresponsibility on the on the mostly the production management. The people that crunch happens because people don't plan properly and it's totally avoidable yep and so anybody who tells you oh well we need to have crunch it's just part of the process they're lying to you you shouldn't listen to those people because they are uh they are making up they're trying to make it they're trying to make it sound like you're the reason why it's happening when in reality it's their fault for not planning Mm -hmm. so don't be bad leadership yeah, it's it's it is. It's all bad leadership. There's a part of it that's bad leadership, but there's also some part of it that can sometimes come from the process. So, as I mentioned, I got into corporate work, and so we do corporate, you know, financial systems and manufacturing systems and things like that. And and the truth of the matter is that going into a project, you're likely not going to have a whole lot of idea of what it's going to look like when you're done. So sure. you're kind of guessing along the way. Any sure, estimate could, is is derived from a guess. <laughs> Well, you can also model, right? Like we used to, when I worked for THQ, we would crank out games, right? Mm -hmm. We would like every year we'd have a new SpongeBob, we'd have a new Nicktoons, you know, those kind of a new uh, game based on um, uh, the Disney franchise, the Pixar franchises like Up and things like that. Mm -hmm. But we went into it with, we knew what we could make. We knew Mm -hmm. how much time we had. We knew how much money we had to spend. 
and we adjust it accordingly. The problem happens when people who are not directly tied to the production, and these are mostly marketing or, mm -hmm. or financial or even you know higher leadership, have unrealistic expectations for the results of the limitations that they've placed on the production team. Yeah. So yeah. This, this is what killed the Saints Row franchise is um, every the first game made a few million dollars. I think it made like two or three million dollars. And the financial team said, oh, if the first one made three million dollars, then the second one should make six million dollars. <laughs> well, no, if the first one made three million dollars, how much money do you think the second one might make? Around three million. Three million if yeah, you have. <laughs> it might, yeah, it might make three million dollars, right? But no, they thought, oh, it had to double. And this escalation of the price of it is part of what killed that game because it couldn't, the number became so ridiculous so fast, it, there was no way it would be able to make nine, 12 million dollars back. And when, and then when it didn't, guess what the, the money people said? It was the fault of design. Yeah, it was the fault of the <laughs> team. It was a failure, mm -hmm. right? They failed because they didn't make a product that would make $12 million based on our projections. Well, <laughs> your projections are wrong and they're skewed and you're living in crazy land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I mean by like bad leadership. It's it's not even that like it could have been avoided, but it's like even if it happened, take ownership of it and be like, okay, we made a mistake. Let's do better next time. It's right, so right. All but, our, it's not your fault. It's our fault. Yeah, right, right. Well, yeah, but, exactly. but but nobody <laughs> wants to take responsibility because mm -hmm. that means then they can be accountable, which means then they might lose their job, and nobody yeah. wants to lose their job. Of course. Right. I mean, it's understandable, but is it responsible or or you know the right thing to do? No. And you really don't learn anything then if you do that. So then this right. mistake will pretty much keep happening. Right, right. And that's why new. THQ is no longer with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of, you know, exactly what I was getting at is, you know, I mean, oftentimes the reasons why projects fail, if they do, is because of exactly what you said, unrealistic expectations. Uh, you know, if, if you think that you're going to be able to, you know, redesign your multi-billion dollar business for, you know, in, in a couple of months, you're not on legal drugs i'll leave it at right. that <laughs> well once again it's it's you know you said that hey we don't know where we're gonna be at, at the end we're just guessing yeah. but you can you can make educated guesses right mm -hmm. and this so this is where you know knowledge try I, I mean i'm an emotional designer i like to design with my heart and my and my uh and my intuition but i don't ignore facts and data when <laughs> they're there Right. It's it's foolish to do so. Yeah, I mean, we're not necessarily comparing apples to oranges either. You know, gap based, you know, product customization is not the same as Greenfield, you know, game design from the ground up. Right. And so sure. you can definitely get a lot more accurate, like you said, about those predictions. You know, you've been working with this team for 20 years and you know what they're capable of, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, right. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, it, it is a it is. It is a matter of, of coming in, you know, predicting those, you know, those timelines and coming in as close to them as you can get. And yeah, keep definitely it. being realistic is a, is a huge part of it. Yeah, yeah. Keep those expectations realistic. Mm -hmm. And that, that's even for little tiny projects, like a little card game. 
all the way up to you know multi-million dollar triple a console game mm-hmm. no i agree and you can tell too with like what's been happening lately in the game world that like no matter how big you are you can still make mistakes <laughs> fallout 76 <laughs> yeah that <laughs> naughty dog a lot of things where it's just like wow well, you, you wouldn't expect it from them yeah people people forget that the biggest game company in the world uh atari completely tanked right <laughs> we you gotta go back and look at your history and look at all the failures and try not to repeat them that and that's the other important thing about being educated uh you know i teach a a video game design history class mm. and there's a lot like my student i go when do you think vr started mm. now oh. aaron you probably aaron yeah. you probably know the answer to this but kevin mm. what what year do you think vr started i'm gonna guess like 1982 or something yeah you're right on 1982 <laughs> really are you so, serious you know, yeah you <laughs> I yeah you know guessed. right <laughs> yeah no it's a good guess what? um yeah i mean it it started all like from a gaming perspective. It actually started earlier than that, but yeah. from gaming, it's it's like <laughs> it goes as far back as the '80s, right? And well, I mean, and people people usually go what 2004 or 1996. Uh, and no. It's like no, this stuff's Uh-oh. this stuff's been around for a long time. It, we're just reinventing things over and over again with better graphics. Right. <laughs> I mean, a lot of cases, we just didn't really have the technology to do it. I mean, we were talking about, uh, you know, and, and Kevin and, and our little team for this game jam, we were talking about, you know, time mechanics and stuff. And we were thinking, so let's, you know, let's throw back to some of the original arcade games, you know, where, you know, the, the objective was to stay on the road as long as possible. Pole position. What were the graphics in pole position? <laughs> A string of dots that scrolled down your screen. Hey man, pole position was gorgeous <laughs> compared to things like Night Driver and games exactly. like that. <laughs> and that so, was in color. Yeah. Pole position you know, was in color. That was amazing back in <laughs> 1982. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, people were doing things with technology back then. I mean, I was just explaining to Kevin earlier about like how we did all of the sound effects in Half Life to fit, you know, 120 hours worth of dialogue on a CD. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But I remember, um, like when Red Book Audio came in, yeah, and that was okay. like, well, I, I mean, the, if you look at the history of gaming, the boom in storytelling in video games exploded when when CDs came around because now you actually had the space to do yep. voiceover and yep. cinematics and music. And before that, you know, it was you know all your bases belong to us, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden now you know you're getting. Uh, uh, um, Wing Commander and things like that. <laughs> right, that's right. Oh my God, Wing Commander was amazing. 3D yeah. back then, yeah. like real 3D. Right, and and a full, full story with actors like Mark Hamill and oh, the guy right. who played Sala in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, Kevin's like the old guys are going off. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what is this? <laughs> what is Wing Commander? Yeah. <laughs> Time to do a little research, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> was like you're flying mm. spaceships around. Back oh yeah, yeah. So it was a first-person, uh, tact, you know, space shooter, kind of like Tie Fighter, X-wing, or Star um, yeah, Star Fox. But Star Fox was on rails, um, yeah. and then it had a very heavy cinematic component to it, where you know there were like hours of uh, theatrically fil- quality filmed right. uh, with actors, and it was good for the time. It was fantastic. 
Yeah, Origin was, man, those guys were innovating. I mean, all of the stuff that Richard Garriott did and the stuff that, oh, what was his name? I'm losing his name. Chris, 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 Chris uh, Roberts, right? Yeah, Chris something. Yeah. <laughs> all of that yeah, stuff they, that they did down there was just, I mean, it was so innovative down there in Texas in the, in the 80s. Well, well they, wanted to, they wanted to make movies, and they thought that video games could be movies. And yeah. on one hand, it was good because it pushed the medium forward. But on the other hand, I think it's a... I think we've learned that it was, it, they're not the same thing, right? And so yeah. they're very different. Uh, and so you can't treat them. You can you can steal things from them. You can use a yeah. lot of the storytelling tricks, but they're not the same beast. Right, because, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're in a movie theater. I'm providing you the images that are going into your eyes, and there's no choice on your part, no agency on your part. You're just a viewer. Right. How do you tell yeah, I mean, a story like that where you are the hero, right? Yeah, for my money, I mean, you know, uh, you guys did it right in Half-Life. It was you were using the levels to tell the stories, not cutscenes. And that mm -hmm. was a huge innovation back then. Oh, there were plenty of cutscenes, too. Well, there were, but people <laughs> but people tend to forget about them, right? Yeah, and yeah. They, and and Half-Life 2 in particular, you know, there are there any cutscenes in 2? Some scripted sequences, but definitely not nearly to the extent that, that Half-Life was. Right, right. So, you know, it paved the way. Mm -hmm. That's actually a really insightful comment, the, the environmental storytelling, because it really was. I mean, that kind of, you know, even hangs off of what we were saying earlier about how, you know, the, the, the player's agency is the, is the trigger for the things that happen within the game. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the player is the activator and the level is the responder. And the level is and the story, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the level is the story, right? And you can tell. So there's lots of little tricks that you can do as a game designer to help tell that story. So one of the games that I worked on was uh, Darksiders. Uh, and I was brought in very late into the project. I had been a part of the team to help kind of approve it with THQ. Mm -hmm. And they went off and worked on it for like a year and a half or something like that. And then I got called by my boss and they said they need help with uh, the combat system. The combat is just not fun. And I had worked on God of War. <laughs> not <point>. fun. <laughs> you heard, yeah, it was you not heard fun, there right? and you were like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, games get in trouble, right? And sometimes people get in over their head or they think they, you know, they have ideas of what they think might be fun and it's just not. And, and so I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, that's my strategy is to surface that unfun and, and knock it out. So I was flown into Texas for like three months. And the biggest problem that I saw was that very little thought had been put into how, why the enemies were there and why they were doing what they were doing. Um, and this is, this is something that for me is fun. I enjoy this. But but when you're doing something as simple as having an enemy appear in a world and then them interacting with a, a player, there needs to be a reason. You know, there needs a, a character can't just show up and be, well, I'm going to kill you. And then you kill them and that's it. That's boring. But if yeah. they're there for if they're there to guard something or if they're there doing something else or they were going to pillage and you're trying to stop them or they're threatening somebody or or they're, you know, whatever, there's a million different reasons you can give that little bad guy. If you take the time to think about what's going on in that world, what the context is, maybe give them, I mean, if you want, you can then, you know, give them some animation or give them a little voiceover. Like there's a really great game called No One Lives Forever. That's a contemporary of the Half-Life game. 
And that game has like all the bad guys actually have dialogue. And if uh-huh. you stop and and it's a first person shooter and your inclination is to just shoot them and kill them. But if you actually stop and hide and listen to them, they have whole stories to tell. And it's it's hilarious. The writing is so good in that game. And and if designers took a moment to just go, why are these things here and what can I do to kind of help them tell the story of the world and the and what's going on in the world? You can get so much mileage out of that. Mm hmm. Well, it's just like a female James Bond game. No one lives forever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, cool. don't dismiss it as just a female James Bond game. It's a, it's a really, it's actually a really cool and I think important in the in the history of storytelling in games. I think that that and Half Life were the two big games to kind of get everybody to realize. Wait a second, we should be doing more with our levels and our enemies. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, you remember Daikatana back then. Yep, I do. Which, after Half-Life was released, um, canceled their release and <laughs> rewrote their game. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they they realized yep. they weren't up to snuff. They had to they had to catch exactly. up. The world was changing. The 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 industry had changed exactly overnight. In fact, and that happens. Well, that's game. and that's <laughs> that's one of the best and worst things about working in game design is. You have to keep up. Otherwise, if you're not agile, if you can't change, then you're going to get left behind. You know, honestly, I'm not sure I would attribute a huge amount of that to Gabe. Gabe is definitely a savvy businessman and knows how to manage projects and manage uh, business exceptionally well. But almost all of those innovations came through Mike Harrington, his partner who founded the company with him. I worked for Mike. <laughs> Mike was a brilliant man, still is to this day. <laughs> yeah, I also well, heard Gearbox did a lot of stuff too with the level design. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Some of the add Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of. I mean, fortunately nowadays it's much more common, but it it took a long time. It took till I'd say the maybe the late 2000s for it to really become starting to become commonplace where people mm-hmm. would think about the stories that the worlds would tell rather than what the writer would tell. Hmm. You know, I never actually got the chance to read any of the original stuff that Laidlaw wrote for Half-Life. I, I, I actually think it would have been really cool to be to just like sit in and listen to some of their design sessions for how yeah. to do exactly what you're talking about, because that is... You know, it is very challenging. I mean, how do how do you make a you know a world that's you know relatively static you know be meaningful to somebody's experience? Yeah. Well, this is where Kevin, you were talking earlier about like all the knowledge a game designer needs to have, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is where, as a game designer, you need to study architecture and you need to mm-hmm. study theme park design and you need to study you know mall how they design malls. And you need to just look at how they, uh, how like gardens and um, parks are designed and playgrounds are designed. Like having knowledge about all these spaces, because each of these spaces do something. And the more insight, and you're going to forget a lot of this stuff, but maybe at some point you'll be working on something and you go, oh, wait a second, I kind of re- remember this. Or if you're like me, you have a big library of stuff and you just still be, oh, wait a second, I remember <laughs> reading in this book. Let me pull out this book. Or yeah. or you get to the point where you have so much information in your head, you have to write your own books 
just to put them down so you don't forget about them, which is mm -hmm. why I wrote my books on game design. <laughs> and one of them is Level Up, right? Right. One of them is called Level Up, The Guide mm -hmm. to Great Video Game Design. You can buy it on Amazon or if they let you back into your favorite bookstore, uh, you can buy it there. Nice. And what's that book uh, about, just leveling up in like game design? Or... No, it's about uh, Kevin has an idea for a game and he mm -hmm. doesn't know what to do with it. Okay. So I help guide you through with uh, with some, uh, if I may say so myself, uh, some funny writing uh, and a lot mm -hmm. of knowledge and a lot of uh, um, a lot of funny little drawings that I've made and the best chili recipe you'll ever find in a video game design book. Yes, <laughs> that's, and, that's uh, one way to buy it. <laughs> and it's uh, it's sold very well. I uh, mm -hmm. I get a nice royalty every year off of it because so many people <laughs> find it. Particularly um, young game designers like it a lot. It's very popular with like fifteen year old boys uh, who are interested mm -hmm. in game design. That's my core audience. Um, but uh, but really, I wrote it because there's lots of great theoretical books on game design. Um, but there weren't a lot of good practical game books on game design. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I um, was already in the process of thinking about, well, if I was going to write a game design book, what would I write? And then at the same time, I gave a lecture at the Game Developers Conference called Everything I Learned About Level Design I Learned from Disneyland. And it's a talk that a lot of people uh, really liked and became it's actually become kind of um, popular. And uh, a person was in the audience and said, hey, this would make a great book. Could you write this book? And I said, well, I, I couldn't just write a whole book on just Disneyland. I'd have to write about more than that. And so I thought I had already been thinking about what I would do anyway. And so I had this great opportunity to create this book. And it's in its second edition. Uh, and, um, and both editions have different chili recipes, as well as some other uh, different examples and art and Things like that. So if you want, if you feel like you want to be a collector, buy both. Uh, but I would recommend if you want to just get one, get the orange cover because that's the more recent one. That's the second edition. And then if you're interested in making mobile games, uh, I wrote a book called Swipe This, the guide to touchscreen game design. And so this was written right when like the Connect and the Wii and the Move were popular, as well as mobile games were just becoming popular. And it has a whole bunch of interviews with game developers, including Andy. Uh, and it talks about how to make games for touchscreen game systems. So I have technically two books on the market. And uh, who knows if I'll, I'll, I've been thinking about doing a third for a while. And, and who knows, maybe uh, this quarantine will be the perfect uh, excuse for writing a book. <laughs> I mean, yeah, perfect a lot excuse. of the time. Yeah. Get into it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Good timing. Now, what would you say to students who feel like they're not progressing with their skills? Like they've been doing the same thing and they've been practicing programming and they can't, they can't get better programming or they're doing game design. They feel like, I'm not really understanding or I'm not moving forward in my games. Right. So the two suggestions I would make is, A, try something else. And I don't mm -hmm. mean stop making games, but I mean uh, concentrate on something else for a while. Uh, if you are a programmer okay. and uh, you're you're feeling kind of burnt by programming, try doing some game design, just on paper, pure game design. Get get your head out of the code for a little bit. If you're a game designer, try making some art for a little while, right? Game art or something like that. Shift your focus around. Uh, 
you know, make two projects at a time. So if you get bored while you're working on one, shift over to the other. You might learn something on that second one that helps you on the first. The other thing is to collaborate because uh, people are going to offer different points of view and opinion and knowledge. And um, part of uh, what will help break your cycle of your own things that you're making over and over again is being challenged, those ideas being challenged by other people. Now, don't get offended. Don't get your back up. Don't get into a fight. Listen, because all that's an important skill for all game designers to have is to listen. And then listen to what they have to say and then digest it and then figure out, all right, there, people always want to try to help. Most people say things. Most people say things with the intention to be helpful. It's just how the information is delivered is where the conflict arises. So you might say this game sucks, and that's not a great way to deliver that information. So usually, what I say is, if somebody says, "All right, something is I don't like something," give a because. I don't like your game because. I felt the controls were too sluggish, or I didn't like the camera, or I don't really like the way the character looks, or I thought this world maybe could have been blue rather than red. That's that's what I call blue rocking. That's a little too. Uh, that's when you're just nitpicking over little stupid things. Yeah. But but as a general rule, people are trying to help. So as a game designer, part of your job is to listen and then try to help those people express to you what they're trying to say. No, I really I agree with that. It's, it's really good advice. And I uh, wanted to get into writing. So what's the writing process like for games, and how can one improve their writing? It's funny. I just um, wrote a, an article for a screenwriting website about mm -hmm. writing in games. And I kind of surprised myself because I wrote this. I said, lots of video games have writers, but in the best circumstances, the game designer is the writer. Now, I don't mm. mean to say that you shouldn't work with writers, but what I mean is the writers need to be involved in the design process. It used to be that we would make a game and we go, shit, we need a writer to help make this better. And so we'd bring in a writer at the last minute to write dialogue or to cut scenes or something like that. The best written games are the ones where the designers are also thinking about the story and the writing at the same time because, like we just got done talking about, the storytelling needs to happen with the gameplay. It can't just be, we're going to play, 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 and then we're going to stop, and then we're going to talk, 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 and then we're going to play, 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 and then we're going to talk, talk, talk. Because I don't know about you, but what I do when I see those cutscenes usually is what? You skip them. Skip them, right? Think about all that money and all that time and all that talent that went into making those poor cutscenes, and you, as the gamer, are skipping them. So, if you want to tell that story to that gamer, put it in the place that the player is most interested in being in, which is the game. Mm. Okay. Dang, I really like cutscenes. I'm the one person who like watches all of them. <laughs> yeah, I am too. I like cutscenes also. Yeah. So. But, mm -hmm. but you got to admit, like, there's certain games that you're like, all right, enough already. Just get yeah. back to the game. Also, if you play the game before, or you keep dying. My, my least favorite is when you have a checkpoint, but, like, right before a checkpoint is a cutscene. So you always have to watch the cutscene. Yeah. Before you 
again, and you're like, come on, I've already seen this 20 times. Let me just go win the right. battle. <laughs> well, once again, yeah. that's the game designer not being kind to the player. There's lots of ways to be cruel to a player, and that mm -hmm. chewing up their time with that, that's just them saying, well, we put all this time and effort into a cutscene. We're going to show it to you again and again. But in reality, once they've played that, you know, the cutscenes get in usually pretty late into a game and often aren't always tested by game designers. Testers are the ones that usually have to put up with this. So uh, it's up to the game designer to think about the player and what their experience is and go, you know what, this is a little abusive. Let's make this save after. Just let's get them back into the gameplay. Mm. Okay. I wanted to ask about the VR game. So how is that different in working with regular games? Um, not too different, but there are mm -hmm. a lot of interesting uh, distinctions between the two. The biggest thing that I had to wrap my head around, because I made what's called location-based experiences, which were, have you guys ever played like The Void or you ever hear of The Void? No. Well, isn't that the okay. thing that uh, uh, that author was working on? Um, uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, which author? There, there were a lot of people working on it. What's his name? So Hick the Void... Hickman. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tra Hickman? Was it Tracy Hickman? Yeah, Tracy Hickman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So okay. The yeah. Void is a company out of uh, Utah that they were like kind of the first big modern VR company. Uh, and they created what's called location-based experiences, which was... You rather than sitting at home with your gear on and, and playing Rick and Morty on your computer or whatever, uh, instead you would go to a place. Uh, in, in their initial case, it was their studio, but then they built um, an experience at the Madame Tussauds in New York, and you would put on a, a headset, a VR headset, and you put on a backpack that was a processor computer, and you would be given a controller, which in this case was a gun, and you would go into uh, what essentially was a haunted house, but you everything you would see was through VR. So it's to have these physical uh, location, these wall, like you would touch the wall and there was a wall there, or you would, uh, there was a chair and the chair was mapped to with a system of cameras and, and uh, code, um, and you could feel the chair, you could sit in the chair, it's pretty amazing. And you would, ghosts would come out of the walls and you'd zap them and you'd, you'd look down and you're holding a proton pack and, and Slimer, here's Slimer coming after you and all that. And you would like get spit on and they would spray water in your face so you'd feel like you were getting spit on. Or wow. the fire, there'd be a fire and you could feel the heat and those were big uh, uh, heaters that were going off, wind, things like that. Excuse me, and it was really cool and super exciting. And they've done a few of these. They did a Star Wars one that was down in uh, the, the two Disney, the downtown Disney areas of world and land. And they did a... They had um, uh, one in Santa Monica, and they had one in a few other places. Well, I worked for a company called Spaces, mm -hmm. who were a bunch of ex-video game and special effects guys. And they were like, hey, we could do this too. And so we did a Terminator one uh, that right. was in um, it was in uh, Irvine, and it was in San Jose, and it was in Tokyo, and I think China. And uh, that one, you would put on the same gear and backpack, mm -hmm. and you have these guns, and you could shoot terminators and you would look like a terminator because we oh, came up so with this cool. crazy story that you had downloaded your consciousness into a terminator and uh and you would go on a motion platform like a ship it would fly and it was super cool and uh and so it was kind of a different experience because it was this merging of vr and theme park so you would feel the things that you would feel on like a on a theme park ride 
but you would be doing the things that you would do in a VR game. And we had really great graphics and you would get points just like a video game. So a lot of the things that I knew about making games were applicable, but now I also had to think about, well, how does the player move in the real world? Now, fortunately, I had worked for about five years with Walt Disney Imagineering, and so I had spent five years thinking about how people interact with real world things. So for me, it was a real happy marriage of the things that I love to do. Um, so I loved it. I thought it was amazing. I was uh, making really cool things. I was um, I got to design a dark ride, which was something that I always wanted dark to do. Ride. And I did. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you go on like the Peter Pan ride or Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. Those are called oh, okay. dark rides. And yeah. and there's a lot of parallels between theme park dark rides and video games. And that's that's what that talk was about that I gave the everything I learned about level design I learned from Disneyland. So if you watch that, you can find that online on the GDC website or even on YouTube. But um, but theme there's a lot of parallels between theme park design and video game design because theme parks are the first virtual worlds. Disneyland is like just like World of Warcraft, but there's real people rather than you know everybody being made out of pixels. Um, and so the, there's a lot of overlap in the knowledge and a lot of overlap on how you interact with people and characters and worlds and buildings and things like that. Um, and so uh, I had a great time in it. But, but also there was a lot of things to wrap my head around, like how space is treated and that you can have a place that is infinite, that you couldn't have that in. I mean, you could kind of do that in video games, but, but there's, there was always a, a limitation. Well, in VR, there, some of those, because of the limitation of movement, that allows you to focus more on the art because the less the player has to move and interact, the more you can put into the world because it, that's what's, um, you know, art-wise and, and code-wise, uh, you can, you, you just have to learn to adjust. The amount of interaction is almost inverse to the amount of uh, beautifulness that you can make in a game. They kind of, they have to live together, but they mm -hmm. kind of move back and forth in relationship to each other. Mm -hmm. Wow. I wish I worked on stuff like that with VR. Uh, <laughs> well, parks. maybe one day you will. Maybe one day, exactly. <laughs> but that's cool. So do, how do you see the future of like gaming? Do you think it's going to be more VR-like, where they can actually be in the world and experience it? Well, I mean, every, I saw everybody... Uh, the VR Alix looks... Every, everybody wants the holodeck, right? Like, that's mm -hmm. one of the dreams of gamers, is they want that that, you know, I can feel something, I can taste something, I can, mm -hmm. you know, do whatever, you know, depending on the peripherals you have. Um, like Ready Player One. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. A lot of people want Ready Player One, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that um, the there are lots of, there are so many different types of games. Each type of game offers something unique and interesting. Uh, tabletop games offer... A tactility and an opportunity to socialize while the game is going on. Um, VR offers you an opportunity to be immersed in these worlds completely. Um, uh, ARGs allow you to have gaming happen while your life is going on. LARPing uh, gives you an opportunity, or role-playing gives you an opportunity to become someone other than yourself, um, but you're initiating the activities that are going on so there's there's all these i think it just depends on the type of game you're interested in making i don't think there will ever be a game that uh supersedes any other type of game 
just like uh, uh, storytelling, there will never be one type of storytelling that supersedes all the other types of storytelling. This is just another tool. And, and gamers over the course of history have always taken new technology and turned them into games. This has happened all the way back. You know, like in the history of video games, the first gaming systems were these giant supercomputers that were not at all designed for gaming. They were there to compute things. And some kids said, hey, let's make a game on it. And that's where we get Tennis for Two and Space War and all those super early video games, right? Remember, and so this uh, happened. Snipes? What's that? that? You ever played what? Network Snipes and Snipes? No. On a Novell Network? No, I've heard of it. I've heard of it, but I've not played. game in the in the early '80s. Yeah, you had a maze yeah. that two people would run around and you could shoot arrows at each other. Yeah, yeah, people would play <laughs> chess by mail, right? Or I, yeah, yeah, you know things like that. So so. People are always looking for, op I mean, when this pandemic started, I was teaching a class on tabletop game design. Well, mm -hmm. guess what we couldn't do? <laughs> tabletop. Yeah, we couldn't play mm -hmm. tabletop yeah. games together, right? So very quickly I pivoted and I said, well, you know, within a week I said, Zoom is the platform everybody is working on. So let's make games for Zoom. And so that I had done some research. If you go to my web, I have a blog that I infrequently update called Mr. Boss Design Lair. So if you or if you look up Scott Rogers blog or whatever, um, you'll find like a whole bunch of articles that I wrote within the first few weeks of the pandemic talking about making games for Zoom because I started playing a ton of games because I wanted to know how it worked. And I wanted to know how I could make games for it. And I've designed a few games. I have a few designs up on my on my blog. I even entered a few into some contests. Um, I should check and see if I won or not. I'm sure they would have told me, though. But uh, yeah, anyway. Right. Uh, somewhere in emails. What's that? Oh, it says somewhere in your email. Like yeah, you yeah somewhere. I'll have to look at my <laughs> spam filter. Yeah. But um, anyway, uh, I saw an opportunity. You know, I wanted to be one of the leading people that knew about how to make games for this new system because it was I, I know that we're going to be with this for a while. And so I've written a bunch of articles and I've already had some of them uh, referenced in uh, different um, like Slate articles and things like that, Polygon. And um, anyway, so uh, it's as game designers, we are constantly you have to be ready to adjust. You have to be ready to you have to be agile. And uh, if you're not, you're going to get left behind. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is cool. So did you design that one board game with all the numbers, the tabletop game? Which, that I see which... on your website? It would look like they had uh, like red blocks, yellow blocks. Um, the board was like three circles or uh, might be. I'm not mm -hmm. sure which one you're looking Are you on Mr. Boss? Yes. Oh, okay. Hang on, let me uh, take a look. I don't know. I design a lot of games. <laughs> oh, uh, are you talking about uh, 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 Scram? I think so. Yeah, Scram. Yeah, that's. Uh, or is that's, no, uh, Pizza Town? Is that Scram? Oh, Pizza Town. Yeah, Pizza yeah. Town is a different game. Yeah. So, um, actually, both Scram and Pizza Town. So I run. Uh, you know, as a game designer, like I said, my goal is to keep making games. But mm -hmm. making games gets expensive. Um, so I have a Patreon, uh, Scott Rogers Designer, I think it is. If you look up Scott mm -hmm. Rogers and games or whatever, or just go to my boss, uh, my Mr. Boss blog spot. 
Um, I offer, I do a Patreon where I talk about games that I've worked on. I look at games in my collection and tell why I like them so much. But I also offer uh, a print and play game every month. I make a new game every month or I pull something out of my uh, kind of vast collection of games that I've made in the past and make them available as print and play games. So Scram is a strategy game. It's a bit like uh, if you like games like Go or even Checkers or Chess. It's a very simple uh, game that you can play. It's a lot of fun. Uh, pizza Town is a game about delivering pizzas and you're being chased by monsters that want to eat the pizzas. Um, I have a werewolf variant. I have a few other games uh, on there as well. Uh, so every month, uh, and my, uh, I think my my Patreon uh, memberships are pretty low. They're like two, five, and ten bucks a month. So if you, I know it's tough times for everybody. So I'm not uh, asking anyone to to donate. But if you feel like you have the money and you like supporting game designers, I am always eternally grateful for anyone's support. Uh, on my Patreon. So uh, if uh, you know you want to help a game designer, please consider uh, sending a few bucks my way. And I'll just keep making games like I love to do. Mm -hmm. No, that's awesome. I mean, it looks like you make a ton of board games. Like yeah, I have, uh, yeah, I have about 15 or 16 designs that are um, playable that I could mm -hmm. like take a box to your house and we could play together. And then probably about another 40 or 50 that are in various states of design. Um, because I'm always making games and I'm always thinking about games and I'm always trying to figure out like what people are interested in. My mm -hmm. and, and sometimes I'm just interested in experimenting with things. So for example, um, uh, my latest game design is called Comic Book Crisis. Okay. Uh, and actually I have the box the mock-up of the box right here and i'm trying to figure out what to do with it do i want to go on kickstarter with it or not uh but this is a mm, board game that. that you can play on any comic book ever published so if you own a copy of action number one which is i think worth about three hundred thousand dollars and you want to bust that comic out from 1938 you can play on that or if you uh if your local comic book store allows you to drive up and uh and pick up your weekly uh supply of books uh and you can play on whatever the latest comic book is so that means i'm making a game that literally has hundreds of thousands of game boards for you to play on that's so cool <laughs> So you're saying I can just open up any comic book at Barnes Noble and be able to play yep. this game? Yeah. Well, you have to have my game to play it. But well, yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but wow. I want that game. <laughs> I want to try that Well, out. I hope a lot of other people do too because yeah. I'm, I'm planning on kickstarting it. I'm just, I guess, got to get all my materials together and make some, it's a lot of work doing a kickstarter. You got to make videos yeah. and you got to make artwork and photographs mm -hmm. and be ready to answer questions and and all that. It's uh, everybody, anybody who does a Kickstarter, my hat is off to them because it is a ton of work. Yeah. No, no. we interview these guys and call the Tracy Brothers and they, they go in depth about it. And it's not an easy process, but they, they oh, kill no. it all the time. They, yeah, they the, really master the Kickstarters. Mm -hmm. And the great news is there's tons of people out there like the Tracy Brothers and, and guys like Jamie Stegmeyer and the late James Matthew and people like that that have great websites that have tons of information. So that way you can learn from everything they learned 
and mm-hmm. you're you're not guaranteed success, but your chances of screwing up are reduced greatly. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And now, so we interviewed Merritt, but uh, what, who was the one that said Jack of all trades and master of one? Was that you or Andy? It's probably Andy. Andy, but, uh, okay. But I, but I agree with that, right? Is like you have to know about so many things to be a game designer, but ultimately it all funnels into being a game designer. And how does one decide what the one thing is? Because I well, was here. It's game I like design, but, yeah. right, but game design is not one thing. Mm-hmm. So, so when I worked on um, uh, Maximo, so Maximo is a game, I, I made the two Maximo games on the PlayStation 2 for mm-hmm. Capcom. And when I worked on that game, my title was lead game designer. But what I did was I helped create the characters. I helped design the levels. Mm -hmm. I worked with um, Matsushita, who was the art uh, artist, the famous artist from Japan. I helped art direct him of what the characters should be like because they need to function a certain way. And we want to make sure that the art supports that function. I storyboarded the cutscenes. I worked with the writer uh, in order to write the, the, I wrote the initial draft of the story and then I worked with the writer to, to develop it further. I, um, uh, I wrote dialogue. I voice directed the, I helped pick the actors. I voice directed the actors. I put in temporary sound effects and, and music and then worked with Tommy Tallarico, the music composer to get the music that we wanted. Um, I uh, put items into the world. I put enemies into the world. I worked with anime. Like I was sometimes the character that the animators videotaped in order to get reference to how moves should work. I uh, sat down with the programmers to help develop the boss fights. Uh, I uh, worked with the marketing department to to you know, communicate what the game was. I went out on press tours and talked to magazines and TV shows. I went to E3 to show off the game to consumers and potential uh, buyers like Walmart and Target and places like that. Um, and uh, and that's that's all part of game design. Yeah, like damn, <laughs> I love that. It's like I've watched the show one time uh, avatar last airbender where i had uncle iroh and he's like you must take from all elements to be completely like whole because then you can learn from each different one don't just stay in one area one element and yeah, never stop learning you yeah always have there's always something new to learn and you can like you know we always do games to make money to have a job to be able to live it's like if you learn a lot of different things if somebody needs help you're like i can do it like you were saying earlier in a podcast I can help out marketing. I can help out here a little bit in programming. I can help out design. Like, keeps you important in the company. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think everyone could be a game designer? No. No. No, because you- I get a. I meet a lot of people who say they're interested in game design, but really mm-hmm. all they're interested in is playing games, and that's okay. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. But they don't have the passion, or they don't have the aptitude or maybe they're they feel like they already know everything um and you have to be willing to realize i mean i've been doing this for 25 years and there are days i feel like i know nothing and so i go all right well maybe everything i thought i knew is wrong and let me find the right way 
And you have to be willing, wow. you, you have to be humble. You have to be willing to admit that you're wrong about something. And, but you should be excited about the opportunity to learn what to do right. I really like that. So I feel that way sometimes as I'm starting. Yeah, I wrote that down. I was like, okay. <laughs> now, what advice would you give for aspiring game designers who are just starting out? Make games. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay, yeah, I like that. And then, uh, so what we do at GameDev.TV is like challenges at the end of the lectures. So we want you to come up with like a game design challenge or any kind of challenge for all the students to do after the podcast. It could be anything small. It doesn't have to be big. Sure. All right. So here's here's a good challenge. Um, take a game that you already, like a tabletop game you already okay. own. All right. So like pull something off your shelf. Usually I'd say it's pretty fair to assume that most people own some sort of board game. Or yeah. it can be like cards or dice or whatever. Then take the rules and throw them out. Well, not throw them out, but set them aside. And then create a whole new game using nothing but the components from the game that you have just selected. And it can't be the same type of game. So if you have risk, it can't be an area control game. If you have uh, cards, poker, it can't be a, a game about collecting certain sets of cards, it has to be something else. See, you can do so many things with the same tools over and over again that you'll be surprised at what you create. Wow, I never even thought about that. Just like, yeah, just disregard all the rules. Make your own game with the stuff they already had. Absolutely. It, it, yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> well, that's how innovation happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You never know what that thing is that you might make. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, seriously, you can get to the end of, of making something that you had a plan in mind, and when it got to the end, it was nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, it and that, that's okay. That's that's part <laughs> yeah. of the creative process. Yeah. Well, uh, Scott, this was awesome. I uh, thank yeah. you for coming on. So sure. much information. Yeah. And yeah, it was my uh, pleasure. Wanna... Anytime, anytime you guys want me back, give me a holler. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right now. And uh, we like to end the podcast with handing the mic to you if you want to do any shout-outs, any inspiration. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Right. Well, first of all, thanks for Andy for uh, hooking me up with you guys. So that's great. Um, secondly, uh, I, I've, I kind of uh, talked about a lot of the places you can find me online, but um, Mr. Boss Design Lair is my blog site. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Scott Rogers Designer is a Patreon um, if you're on Facebook, uh, I'm on uh, that. I also have a Facebook fan page for both uh, my game, uh, Pantone the Game, which is a board party game, and Comic Book Crisis. So if you want to join those, uh, please go ahead. I'm also on Twitter at Mighty Bedbug is my Twitter handle. Uh, and I'm even on Instagram as well. And I run a, at least during the pandemic, I've been running a daily game of Pantone the Game. And I love it when people uh, come and try to guess what crazy characters I'm creating with my uh, game Pantone. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you can find or or you know check out Level Up the book on Amazon or wherever. I'm um, I'm all over the place. Just put in Scott Rogers Game Designer, uh, you'll definitely find me. And I hope to see all of you guys uh, at our NIFA events. Yes. The Masters of Game <laughs> Design and all that other our workshops and all that. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can find all GameDev.TV courses at courses.gamedev.tv slash courses or in the show notes with a 10% discount. Get started with your game development journey today.